Hello, this is Everything's Political, and I'm your host, Junius Williams. I hope everyone is well and in good spirits as you join me in my new podcast. Now, I know some of you are saying right now, right from the beginning, everything's political. That's a bold statement. How do you know that everything's political? How can you show me that everything's political? Well, what difference does it make? I can prove it using my own life as a basis for judgment and in doing so, perhaps establish my credentials to make that claim in the first place. So let me start with a statement of fact. I am a black man of a certain age and I come from the South. I was born in Suffolk and raised in Richmond, Virginia, and I wanted to succeed. I went to segregated schools, kindergarten through high school. My friends were all black. My teachers, all black. I had to drink from the colored water fountain, swim in the colored pool, and go to the colored movie theaters. Segregation was imposed on me by a set of laws based on social practice called white supremacy. So, start of life was purely based on decisions made by white people who wanted to keep me in a certain place all the time. That is political. My parents were school teachers. My mother went to Howard University, one of the leading HBCUs in the country. But she transferred to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia to continue her pursuit of her degree in music education, but couldn't live on campus with the white students, so she had to find a room in the colored section of town. My father went to West Virginia State College, also a historically black college. After he went to Lynchburg Seminary in Lynchburg, Virginia, a segregated high school, West Virginia State College eventually became almost all white as white people decided they wanted the cheap education nearby and took over. Everything's political. Now, because of the influence of my parents and their genes, I am a musician. Much music ability is not political. It is hereditary, and anybody can play if they practice enough. But what and how you play and under what circumstances you play is indeed political. My father was the first black music teacher in the segregated school system in Richmond. So I was in his band at Armstrong High School, playing at different times clarinet or saxophone. And on the side, I learned how to play the drums. My father had to teach at the elementary school level, junior high school, then end up in high school each day. He could forecast the size and quality of the high school band by the interest he developed along the way, starting in those elementary schools in Churchill and as the years went by. Richmond is the capital of Virginia and the former capital of the Confederacy and the tobacco capital of the South. Maybe not now, but it was back in the day. So every November the lords of the tobacco kingdom celebrated another successful harvest season with a parade 
featuring all the local colleges and high schools with floats, celebrities, bands, including the high school band we were supposed to play. So there were two major high schools, white high schools, Thomas Jefferson and John Marshall. And then there was Armstrong and Walker. I went to Armstrong. Maggie Walker was the other black. The John Marshall Band and the Thomas Jefferson Band traditionally were in the front, and the black bands were in the back. Except that my father and the other black band director decided one day, nope, we're not going to do that. Therefore, it wasn't until my senior year after the beginning of the civil rights protest in Richmond, led by the students at Virginia Union University, another HBCU, that the powers that be decided to desegregate the march. You see, everything's political. They saw those young folks coming out, and they didn't want folks jumping up at that parade. Mr. Sanderson, the school superintendent of music, I, I hesitate to call him a superintendent of music, but he was in charge of the music. He decided for years to keep us in the back and then changed his mind when the college students were beginning to rise up. You guessed it, everything's political. My daddy, Maurice Williams, the Armstrong band director, and Joe Kennedy, the Walker School director, band director, had for years risked their jobs and had gotten away with it by refusing to march in the back of the parade. That sure as hell was political. And when we marched on that cold day in November, was it just about the music or what? I wrote about this occasion. Let me get my book here. It's called Unfinished Agenda, Urban Politics in the Era of Black Power. And I remember these pages very well because I refer to this so often. I want to share a few paragraphs with you about that event. There were four corners with the two white bands from Thomas Jefferson and John Marshall on two of those corners and Armstrong and Maggie Walker on the other two. Each band took a turn warming up, showing off their prowess on the drums. Of course, the white folks ordained themselves to go first. We listened and began to titter and teehee at the stiffness of all that John Philip Sousa, West Point, Annapolis, regimental drumming. Hmm. We knew what Gregory Coleman and the drummers of Armstrong were capable of, and even though we were rivals, Walker came from the same stuff. So when it came our turn, each of the colored bands proceeded to blow them away with all that African syncopated, fat-backing, cornbread, polyrhythmic, pre-funkadelic, back-beating, New Orleans, Mardi Gras soul we had been waiting to reveal at this moment in history. In short, we rocked their world, shocked their falsely held belief that they were the best because they were white. White bands have precision, but black bands can strut which requires precision and soul. It was on that corner that a mighty myth was shattered before young eyes of both races. That day, we marched so gloriously, I could see it in my father's eyes how proud he was of us, and in the applause we got from blacks and white alike along the parade route. 
I wrote about that, and you can see that I had some depth of feeling, shall we say. It was more than a parade. It was an awakening, and so there was anger in my voice, and probably it's carried over till now. When I wrote that book, I had that feeling. Black kids were just as good as white kids, and maybe even better on the music we prized, and they prized so greatly. But the familiar institutions of America, like school, the media, the people we honored as leaders, took that knowledge of self away from us, our history, our languages, our leaders, our culture. And here we had won some of that knowledge back on a showdown, on a throwdown, on a street corner in Virginia, not too far away from where it all began in Jamestown. And there were some white people who appreciated us as well. That was a surprise. A change in the atmosphere of Jim Crow for just that one moment when we passed by. Maybe it lasted longer than that. Maybe it didn't. But everything's political. Now, if my father had been a lesser man and had us march anyway in an earlier year, always in the back of the parade, and Joe Kennedy had done the same thing, we wouldn't have had that empowering experience. We'd have just gone along with the way things were and accepted the politics of denial and oppression because he and Joe Kennedy made a choice. We were the beneficiaries of a brand new attitude. Everything's political. Either choice had its consequences, one indicative of status quo, one indicative of resistance, but both political. It was not just walking east on Broad Street, cold, but proud. Now, there were other points in my life when it was more than what it seemed on the surface. I was a Boy Scout troop. I don't remember at my church, Ebenezer Baptist in Richmond. Scouting was one of my favorite activities because we got to be outdoors. I was a Life Scout. One level just below Eagle. I wanted to be an Eagle Scout so bad. I had worked hard to get those merit badges, and I was almost there. But then one day, the law intervened. The courts declared an end to segregated public facilities in Richmond, like the swimming pools. And rather than comply with the law, the city of Richmond closed the public pools both black and white, rather than desegregate the white pool. I was devastated. I could get the other two merit badges I needed, but never swimming and life-saving. I could never be an Eagle Scout. I think I must have cried. Everything was so racist, and that sure as hell was political. I went to Amherst College. I was a good student at Armstrong, 3.96 average out of four, valedictorian of my class, musician, athlete. I played tennis, not as good as Arthur Ashe, who went to Walker. That's another story. But at Armstrong, no, at Walker, did they teach calculus, no pre-calculus. None of the black schools had those subjects. And it didn't take place in most of the South, I found out later on. Calculus was required in my first year at Amherst, along with physics. 
that use the calculus I was supposed to know. Higher than a C, but no lower than a C minus. That was me in my first year. But because I had to spend six hours a day mostly on math and physics, my other subjects suffered. I didn't have much time to study history, humanities, French, and whatever else they required me to take. There went my A's. Was it about my ability? Well, I had no great fluency in math, but I worked hard to get my A's in Richmond. But my C-minus came because of the political decisions made about schools in Richmond, the funding, the curriculum, the teacher training, the placement, and the culture of learning. They didn't think calculus was necessary at that time. If they had it, I would have taken it. I would have done well. Damn it. All things are political. Now let's look at some of the common threads I have established so far. Juniors, there were choices made by you or someone for you. That's number one. Number two, even the choices you make or I make are often not ours, but something somebody put in our mind to uphold the status quo, that is, fulfilling their expectations. So let's take the next step. If you color within the lines marked by somebody else's expectation, that's accommodation. We accommodate sometimes without knowing. Segregation depended upon everyone accommodating, playing their respective roles without too much thinking about it. But if you color outside the lines, it's called resistance. And that's what black folks were beginning to do when I was a teenager in Richmond, saying to one another and to white people, we got to change this master plan. Now, some of my white friends out there in radio land, in podcast land, they're going to say, well, that's fine, but the story works because you are black. And I say, no, no, no. You see, white people are in either one of these two categories as well. They are accommodating or in resistance. There are lots of decisions made for you or that you make knowingly or unknowingly that enhance or preserve your position of privilege. And that is very political. And if you decide you want to get rid of that privilege, now you're on the side of resistance. White people working their way out of privilege are definitely in resistance very much in demand by those of us looking for allies and political as all get out. Don't you find that's true? No matter who you are, if you're honest about your life story, you'll see that we all fit into one side or another of that reality. We accommodate or we resist. It's not one size fits all, but all things are. Everything is. Everything's political.
Let's further examine the preposition. I'm going somewhere, so just stay with me here. If you're on the resistance side, as much of my life has been, you will find you are more and more in control of the decisions you make. But there are consequences. Sometimes it's wondrous. It's eye-opening, forward-thinking, progressive. We find out so much wonderful data that we can use. We find out so much we can about each other. Like the saga of the four bands on the four corners in Richmond. Everything about that showdown was political, resulting in some young black folks and white folks who were educated about the value of black lives. But it doesn't always work out that way. Fast forward many years. I moved to Newark, New Jersey, became an organizer, considered a leader, made a name for myself, and I ran for mayor of Newark in 1982. I ran against Ken Gibson, the man I helped to become the first black mayor of Newark and of a major northeastern city. I was his first campaign manager. But 12 years later, I didn't see him leading into resistance enough. There was too much accommodation, acceptance of the status quo. So I ran and I lost. I did well for having very little money and little organization. So my plan was to run four years later, in 1986. But without going into detail, there were people who didn't want me to win, not even to run. If you want the details of treachery and betrayal, you can read it in my book, Unfinished Agenda, but I can sum it up in two lines from Leon Lumpkin's song. Leon Lumpkin, great gospel singer and choir director from Newark. He sang the words, My enemies tried to drown me, flooded my life with misery. If that doesn't say it, Oh, I don't know what does. That's exactly the political price I paid for being in resistance, getting out of line. I wasn't supposed to be the mayor. You know better, Junius Williams. After they worked their show, at that point I had no means to make a living, and it was Christmas time. I was like my grandmother from Virginia said, I didn't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out. Now, that is bad. But let's go back to Leon's song. But God wouldn't let him keep me down. Instead, he lifted me to higher ground. He went on to say, look at me. I'm still here just by his love. Now, I can picture Leon singing that song. Of course, it wasn't that short. Picking that song, singing that song in my old church, Greater Abyssinian Baptist, getting up from the organ where the choir had joined him, walking in front of the pulpit with the microphone in his hand to the delight of the parishioners who stood up and cheered him on. Now, there wasn't a soul in that church that hadn't heard that song a dozen times, a hundred times, who hadn't experienced the black experience in America. At first you doubt, but then you get up. That's what makes the blues and gospel so great. I'm still here just by his love. So I got some new clients. 
I started paying off my bills. I am an organizer, and organize I did. What does an organizer do? He or she spots the issue, analyzes and studies the issue, recruits people around the issue, takes on the issue, and wins with the issue. And that's what we did. Me and Marsha Brown and Sylvia Jackson and Boise and others in fighting back the college's second attempt to grab land in the Central Ward and in so doing, extracted money from mortgages from the banks and subsidies from the state to build low and moderate income houses for prices as low as $25,000 for some people and $52,000 for others. That's right. New houses. Everything's political. I, we, had learned our lessons well. You got to know more than what you think you know. More than what you know. Well, now, I'm thinking the politics in our lives don't always have to be so serious, so costly. Isn't that right, Juniors? Okay, how about this one? I love dogs, but mostly big dogs. No little bitty little lap dogs. I've had a couple of them. That's because sometimes we see the world through the lens of our parents. We wear their choices, and my daddy and mama liked big dogs. Maybe that's why I love that old saying, if you can't hang with the big dogs, then stay on the front porch. Well, my politics can't be contained on the front porch, so I always had me a big dog. I could go on and on. I am, among other things, in my earlier life a trial lawyer, so what do you expect? Okay, Junius Williams, at this point, you got to tell us why is this important. The most important thing we can learn from this exercise and lesson plan I'm describing is to learn to be prepared for the next moment. Sometimes what you see is what you get, but other times it's what you don't see that will get you. You have to learn why things are the way they are, who's involved, whose interest does it serve. And that's why you have to learn things you never learned before, and that's where I come in. I'm going to get you ready in this new day and age. Now let's get down to work. It's a new day later in a new millennium. I want to examine some of the stories they tell about who we are and where we need to go post-election that just about consumed us, all we have to do is to put in the ballot right now. And we're going to use four parts or chapters to get some understanding. Why do I call them parts? Not trying to be clever, you know, parts or podcasts. No, no, no. Parts because of orcas. Orcas. O-R-C-A-S. Orcas, killer whales, my favorite marine mammal. Big, smart, aggressive, organized in families called pods. Children and parents hunt together. And that's what we're going to do together to look at some of these aspects we see and don't really understand the underlying politics and operation. Come up with solutions that people can undertake when joined together with somebody else. Lots of somebodies. The more, the better. 
so long as we all learn the rules to make organizing successful. So here's lesson number one, part number one. As you might suspect, we're going to spend some time with race and racism. Racism has been with us since America began, all sizes, shapes, and cover-ups. But the ultimate result is the George Floyd executioner's demeanor. Remember what he looked like? And the George Floyd family response, the untimely death, the destruction of a family, because you saw it, the destruction of the American dream in your very own eyes. But what aspects of racism go unseen, unheard? How did it happen that black lives don't matter? Suppose racism, like COVID-19, is a part of the DNA of America. Suppose we begin to understand that racism is structurally built into every aspect of that America. What do we do then? We're going to examine the prescription for America put forward by my friend, now deceased, Professor Derek Bell, writing in his book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, where he talks about the quote-unquote permanence of racism, the socially and economically entrenched culture of white supremacy so deep within the marrow of the bones of America that we just can't get it out. How does that make you feel? Now, somebody said to me, Juniors, don't talk about that. It'll scare people away. It'll discourage them. I disagree. Somewhere in the Bible, it says the truth will set you free. And I'm going to show you just how that works. Can a well-thought-out plan for ending racism in America get rid of it? Deal with it effectively? We're going to find out. Number two. Culture and choices. Black folks have a distinctive culture. It is historically because of the strength of this culture that we have survived and thrived as much as we have, as much as we've been able to do. That culture is centered around, among other things, the music we've created. But what happened to the blues and its children? The children of the blues, gospel, jazz, rhythm and blues, funk, all of those. We are told that all aspects of the blues are too old, that it's time to go to pop, rap, country, although country and the blues grew up at the same time. But when almost two generations of young black people have kicked the blues to the side, somebody picked it up, dusted it off, and now proudly proclaim it as their own. We're going to look at the blues and its history. We're going to look at its long process of cultural appropriation, the most advanced stage of white supremacy active today. White people are now the new blues men and women. God bless them. God bless them. They should enjoy the blues and get good at it. Everybody should be able to play the blues. But it is, is it theirs and no longer ours? We're going to look at the politics of cultural appropriation. Everything's political, even the music you don't hear. Number three, economics and redistribution of wealth. Now, you say out there, whoa, 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 Junius Williams, 
you done crossed the line now getting ready to talk about socialism, even communism. Well, my friends, that's what you see because of the stories and the name calling that gets told. What you don't see is that the greatest redistribution of wealth this country has known has been taking place over the last 50 years right here under your nose, going from working and middle class to the top 1% of the wealth owners in this country. That, my friends, is the economic proof that will show you that everything's political. And the way they pull that heist off, you need to understand the politics involved. I have to take my hat off to them if it didn't hurt all of us so bad. So I'm not. So that's why we go into number four, organization and transformation, using history and imagination to usher in the ideas we need to rethink America. We're going to have a conversation about the difference between mobilization and organization. Let me give you that again. Difference between mobilization and organization about the Lone Ranger theory of justice. I'll give you a hint. It won't be just about mass demonstration. It won't be just by you doing it yourself, but it will involve the masses of the people united and using mind, body, and soul and discipline. How's that sound? I'll start with what I learned from Worth Long from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. We were locked up together in Kilby State Prison in Montgomery, Alabama, for trying to get the right to vote. In the one big cell, they placed about 75 for us, 75 men. There weren't any blankets, just mattresses on a concrete floor. So the guards threw in about 25 blankets for 75 cold men. Immediately, there was a scramble for the blankets, and the big guys won. What do you expect? That's when Worth Long got on the table and said, I don't know about you, but if I was a man, I wouldn't take a blanket unless there was a blanket for everybody. He paused, let that sink in, then said it again. After about a few seconds lapse, like clockwork, the big guys gave up their blankets, threw them in a pile in the middle of the floor. Then the guards went back and brought out some more, and in less than five minutes, Worth had organized that cell. I'm talking about Worth Long, y'all. That's the key to a successful America and the key we want to rethink, to show the world there are other ways to do things. We're going to invent some newness by examining what we must renounce, but discover what we must do, what we must hold on to, to get a blanket for everybody. And to do it jazz musician style, able to improvise and create anew. On your feet, young lady, on your feet, young man. We're going to do this thing. We got to make two plus two equal five. And we're not going to do it with a rubric. And it won't be about the calculus from my Amherst college years. This is how we work. A new podcast will be posted every month. Thereafter, on the last Wednesday, you'll hear me again with part number next. 
First one coming up on November 25th on Race and Racism. There's something about a Wednesday that appeals to me. It's like playing the blues in F. Not in G, but in F. Wednesday, not Thursday. And it's always going to be right there in the corner pocket. I'll start out with a topic, bring in other people to join me on occasion, and ask you for questions or comments, which I'll answer the next time I see you, which you can post on uh, Everything's Political Facebook page. That's one word, Everything's Political Facebook and that's going to be the same with our Gmail account, Everything's Political Podcast at gmail.com. Aside from today's topics, occasionally I'll sneak in a short essay, something from my book, Unfinished Agenda, or from my favorite website, since I produced it with a great team of folks like Peter Blackburn and others. The website is called RiseUpNewark.com. There will always be something I've been dying to tell you, maybe for a few years, and you didn't even know me. And every chance I get, we'll examine some good music because people have to have melody and harmony to go out there and brave the beasts that roam the land. Can I get a witness? Mm-mm. Two things I want you to add. Number one, I think you ought to get a copy of my book, Unfinished Agenda. It will make things become a lot clearer, especially when I'm talking about stuff in Lesson 4, Community Organizing. Number two, take a look at the website, riseupnook.com. It's a treasure trove of information as well, and I'll draw on it frequently. Not trying to sell the book necessarily, but trying to put us in the best possible arrangement to learn what we have to learn as we spend this time together. Finally, before I go, I want to thank some people and organizations that will make this podcast possible. My good friend, Kurt Fields and the Terrell Foundation, huge supporters of RiseUpNook.com and RiseUpDetroit.org. Yeah, we got that too. And of me, Junius Williams the Center for Education and Juvenile Justice, my sponsoring organization. I want to thank my art directors and publicists, Alexis McCoy and Frankie Walls, my editor, Kelly Prempe, who were all three students of mine at the Abbott Leadership Institute Youth Media Symposium when they were high school students at Rutgers University in Newark. Now you've got the students who become the teachers as they guide me along this race, and I sure do need help. I want to thank Anthony Jackson, better known as Ant Jackson, my musical director from my singing group, Return to the Source, for that funky song playing underneath occasionally called Groovin'. Ant is a consummate musician, singer, writer, arranger, musical director, I want to thank my advisors, Francesca Larson of Mosaic Strategies, Hanifa Bond, who has her own podcast called Disrupting Balance, and Augustine Ndugu, podcasting from Nairobi, Kenya, as the Ndugu Report. Big up to my family, of course, my wife, Antoinette Ellis Williams, who is always my creative advisor, my children, 
Camille, Jania, Juniors, and last but not least, Che, my technical intuitive who keeps me sane at home trying to navigate me through these new waters called technology because that's where the big fish lie. It would have been easier for me to go out and fight the Klan all over again. But that's why I have this team of young folks around me to get you out there. So I hope you find this interesting. Starting on the last Wednesday of each month, you'll hear from me again, starting with part number one, race and racism, putting that into the context of the election of the president, of course. You'll hear from me on that. In the meantime, let me say goodbye as I move on to the next big thing, because one thing you're going to hear from me from time to time, a black man's work is never done. Why? Because everything's political. Bye-bye.